Chapter 10 of Their Yesterdays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Their Yesterdays by Harold Bell Wright. Chapter 10 Failure. And that year also went to join the years of the yesterdays. It is as though life, bringing to man every twelve months a new year, bids him try again. Always it is necessary for man to try again. Indeed, life itself is nothing less than this, a continual trying again. In the world laboratory, mankind is conducting a series of elaborate experiments, always on the verge of the great discovery, but never quite making it, always thinking that the secret is about to be revealed, but never quite uncovering it, always failing in his experiments, but always finding in the process something that leads him, with hope renewed, to try again. The man had failed. Sadly, sternly, with the passing of the year, he admitted to himself that he had failed. Humiliated and ashamed, with the coming of the new year, he admitted that he must begin again. Bitterly he called himself a fool. And perhaps he was, more or less. Most men are a little foolish. The man who has never been forced to swallow his own folly has missed a bitter but wholesome tonic that, more than likely, he needs. This man was not the kind of a man who would blame anyone but himself for his failure. If he had been that particular kind of a fool, his failure would have been of little value, either to him or to anyone. Neither would there be, for me, a story. I do not know the particulars of this man's failure, neither the what, the why, nor the how. I know only that he failed, that it was necessary for him to fail. Nor is this a story of such particulars, for they are of little importance. A man can fail in anything. Some, even, seem to fail in everything. This, therefore, is my story, that as failure enters into the life of every man, it came into the life of this man. In some guise or other, failure seems to be a necessity. It is one of the thirteen truly great things of life. But the man did not, at that time, understand that his failure was a necessity. That understanding came to him only with success. You may say that this man was too young to accomplish a real failure, but you need not bother about that either. One is never too young to experience failure, and failure, to the one who fails, is always at that time very real. So this man saw the castles that he had toiled so hard to build come tumbling down about him. So he was awakened from his bright dreams to find that they were only dreams. So he came to see his work as idleness and folly. Sorrowfully he looked at the ruin of his building. Hopelessly he recalled his dreams. Despairingly he looked upon his fruitless labor. With his fine manhood's strength dead within him, he bitterly felt himself to be but a weakling, fit only to be pushed aside by the stronger, better men among whom he went, now, with lifeless step and downcast face. There was left in his heart no courage and no hope. He saw himself a most miserable coward, and, ashamed and disgraced in his own sight, he shrank from the eyes of his fellows and withdrew into himself to hide. The only thing that saved the man was this. He did not pity himself. Self-pity is debilitating. It is the dry rot that weakens the lifelines. It is the rust that eats the anchor chains. At the last analysis, a man probably knows less about himself than he knows about others. The only difference is that what he knows about others is sometimes right, while that which he thinks he knows about himself is nearly always wrong. Salvation is in pitying someone else. If one must have pity, he should accept it from strangers only. The pity of strangers is harmless to the object of it and very gratifying to the strangers. Self-accusation, self-censure, self-condemnation, these are the antidotes for the poison that sometimes enter the soul through failure. 
but these antidotes must be administered with care. Self-accusation has usually a very low percentage of cause. Self-censure, undiluted, is dangerous to self-respect, and self-condemnation is rarely to be had pure. When one brings himself to trial before himself, his chance for justice is small. The judge is nearly always prejudiced, the jury packed, and the evidence incomplete. The man, when he had withdrawn into himself, saw the world moving on its way without him, as though its failure mattered to it not at all. He was forced to realize that the work of the world could be done without him. He was compelled to see that the sum of human happiness and human woe would be neither less nor more because of him. The world did not really need his success. He needed it. The world did not suffer from his failure. He suffered. He did not understand, then, that no man is in line for success until he understands how little either success or his failure matters to the world. He did not know, then, how often a good strong failure is the cornerstone of a well-builded life. A child is not crippled for life because it falls when it is learning to walk. Neither has a man come to the end of his upward climb because he stubs his toe. The man knew this later, but just then he was too sore at heart to think of even trying to get up again. All those first months of that new year he did nothing but the labor that was necessary for him to do in order to live. And, in that which he did, he had no heart, but toiled as a dumb beast toils in obedience to its master. The joy of work which is the reward of labor was gone. So the spring came. The air grew warm and balmy. The grass in the lawns and in the park began to look soft and inviting to feet that were weary with the feel of icy pavements. The naked trees are being clothed in spring raiment, fresh and green. The very faces of the people seemed to glow with a new warmth, as though a more generous life was stirring in their veins. As the sun gathered strength, and the coldness and bleakness of winter retreated farther and farther before the advance of summer, the manner and dress of the crowds upon the street marked the change, as truly as the habits of the birds and flowers, until, at last, here and there, straw hats appeared, and suddenly, as bluebirds come, barefooted boys were playing marbles in the alleys, and fishing tackle appeared in the windows of the store. All his life the man had been an ardent fisherman, and so, when his eyes were attracted that noon, as he was passing one of those windows filled with rods and reels, and lines and hooks and nets, and all things dear to the angler's heart, he paused. His somber face brightened. His form, that was already stooped a little, straightened. His listless eyes, for a moment, shone with their old-time fire. Then he went on to his work. But less than ever, that afternoon, was the man's heart in his labor. While his hands mechanically performed their appointed tasks, and his brain as mechanically did its part, the man himself was not there. He had gone far, far away into his yesterdays. Once again, in his yesterdays, the man went fishing. The boy was a very small boy when first he went fishing, and he fished in the brook that ran through the valley below the little girl's house. The hook was only a pin, bent by his own fingers, his line, a bit of string or thread borrowed from mother's work-basket, and his rod, a slender branch of willow or a green shoot from one of the trees in the orchard, or, it might be, a stalk of the tall pigweed that grew down behind the barn, and for bait, those humble friends of boyhood, the angle-worms. How the boy shouted and danced with glee when he found a big one, even wiggling to drop it into the old baking-powder can he called his bait-box. And how the little girl shrieked with fear and admiration. Very proud was the boy that he had courage to handle the crawling things, though many of them did escape into their tiny holes, before he could bring himself quite to the point of catching them and pulling them out. Only girls are afraid of worms and toads and bugs. Boys can bait their own hooks. Manfully, too, did he hide his thoughts when conscience pricked him, even as he the worm. 
Do worms have feelings? he wondered. Does it hurt? Half frightened, he had laughed one day, when the little girl asked, What if some wicked giant should catch you, and stick you on a great hook, and swing you through the air, kicking and squirming, and drop you into the water where it's deep, and leave you there, until some great fish comes along to swallow you like the man in the Bible that Mother reads about? But the boy in his yesterdays carried home no fish from that little brook, though he spent many hours in the hot summer sun watching eagerly for a bite. He knew there must be fish there, great big fellows. There were such lovely places for them under the grassy banks, if only they would come out. But they never did. Not until he was older did the boy understand the real reason of this failure. The water was not deep enough. He learned, in time, that big fish are not found in shallow streams. I do not know, but perhaps the man, even as the boy, was fishing in a too shallow stream. As he grew older, the boy wandered farther down the creek. A sure enough fish-hook took the place of the bent pin, and a real boughten line, with a sinker, was tied to the hook, though he still used the slender willow-rods. And now he sometimes brought home a fish or two from the deeper water down in the pasture-lot. And no success in after-life would ever bring to the man the same thrill of delight that was felt by the boy when he landed a tiny chub or shiner. No Roman general, returning in triumph from the wars with captives chained to his chariot, ever moved with a prouder spirit than he when he went home to mother with his little string of captured fishes. Then there came a day that was the proudest in his life, the day when he was given a larger hook, a longer line, a cane pole, and permission to go to the mill pond. No more fishing for him in the brook now. He had outgrown all that. How small the little stream seemed now, as he crossed it on his way down the road. Could it be possible, he asked himself, that he was ever content to fish there, and with a bent pin at that? and he felt carefully in his pocket to see if those extra hooks were safe, and took another peep at the big worms in his bait-box, an old tomato-can this time. There would be no twinge of conscience when he baited his hook that day, and proudly he tried to take longer steps in the dusty road, almost breaking into a run as he neared the turn where he knew that he would see the pond. Often the boy wondered if there could be anywhere in all the world such another body of water as that old mill-pond. Often he wondered how deep it was down by the dam in the shadow of the giant elms that half hid the mill. Many times he questioned, Where did all the water come from anyway? Surely it could not all come from the tiny stream that flowed down the valley behind the little girl's house. Why, he could wade in that, and there were boats on this. Once again the man, in his yesterdays, stood at that turn in the road, under his bare, boyish feet the hot, hot dust, over his head the blue, blue sky. Before him the beautiful water that mirrored back the trees, the clouds, and the buildings. Once again he sat in the shadow of the old covered bridge, fish-pole in hand, and with boyish delight and pride, hailed each addition to the string of catfish and suckers that swam nearby, safely anchored to the bank. He could hear the drowsy hum of the mill across the pond, and the merry shout of the miller hailing some passer-by. And now and then would come the clatter of horses' hoofs, and the rumble of a farmer's wagon on the planks above his head and he would idly watch the ever-widening circles in the water as some bit of dirt, jarred from the beams above, marred the glassy surface. The swallows were wheeling here and there in swift, graceful motions, one moment lightly skimming the surface of the pond, and the next, high in air above the trees and buildings. A water-snake came gliding toward an old log close by. A turtle was floating lazily in the sun. And a kingfisher startled him with its harsh, discordant rattle as it passed in rapid flight toward the upper end of the pond, where the tall cattails were nodding in the sunlight, and the drooping willows fringed the bank with green. 
The shadows of the giant elms near the dam grew longer and longer. A workman left the mill and started across the pasture toward his home. A farmer stopped on his way from the field to water his team. The frogs began to call shrilly from the reeds and rushes. The swallows, tittering, sought their nests beneath the bridge. It was time that the boy was going home. Slowly, reluctantly, the little fisherman drew his line from the water and wrapped it carefully round the pole. Then, picking up his string of fish, he inspected them thoughtfully, admiring the largest and wishing that the others were like him, and casting one last glance at the water, the trees, the mill, started down the road toward home. He must hurry now. It was later than he thought. Mother would be watching and waiting supper for him. How pleased she would be to see his fish. He wished that the string were longer. How quickly the night was coming on. It was almost dark. And then, as the boy went down into the deepening dusk of the valley, he saw, on the other side, the light in the windows. He was almost home. Tired little fisherman. Wearily he crossed the creek and made his way up the gentle slope toward the lights that gleamed so brightly against the dark mass of the orchard hill, while high above the first stars of the evening were coming out. And then, as in the gloaming he reached at last the gate where the little girl lived, he found her waiting, watching anxiously, eager to greet him with sweet solicitude. Did you catch anything? Proudly the boy exhibited his catch, wishing again in his heart that the string were longer. Sadly, he told how the biggest fish of all had dropped from his hook just when he had it almost landed. And sometimes, the man remembered, sometimes the boy was forced to answer that he had caught nothing at all. But always, then, he would bravely declare that he would have better luck next time. Tired little fisherman, going home with his catch in the evening, always disappointed little fisherman, wishing that his string were longer. Always brave to try again little fisherman, when his day was a day of failure. The man came back from his yesterdays that afternoon to wonder, when the shadows of his life grew longer and longer, when his sun was slowly setting, when he reluctantly withdrew, at last, from the busy haunts of men, when he went down the road toward home, as it grew darker and darker until he could not see the way. Would there be a light in the window for him? Would he know that someone was waiting and watching? And would he wish that his string of fish were longer? However great his catch, would he not wish that the string were longer? And might it not be, too, that always in life the largest fish would be the one that he had almost landed? And it was so that the old fire came again into the man's eyes to stay. He stood once more erect before men. Again his countenance was lighted with courage and with hope. With the brave words of the little fisherman who had caught nothing, the man, once again, faced the world to work out his dreams. and the woman who knew herself to be a woman was haunted by the thought of failure. After death had come with such suddenness into her life, she had gone back to her work, and, in spite of the changes that death had wrought, the days had gone much as the days before. But, because of the new conditions and the added responsibilities, she gave herself now somewhat more fully to that work that she had ever done before. She left for herself less time for the dreams of her womanhood, less time for waiting beside that old, old door beyond which lay the life that she desired with all the strength of her woman heart. And that world in which she labored, that life to which she now gave herself more and more, rewarded her more and more abundantly. Because she was strong in body, with skillful hands and quick brain, because she was superior in these things to many who labored beside her, she received a larger reward than they. For the richness, the fullness of her womanhood, she received nothing. From love, the only thing that can make that which a woman receives fully acceptable to her, she received nothing. 
There were many who, now, congratulated the woman upon what they called her success. And some, who knew the measure of the reward she received from the world that set a price upon the things of her womanhood, envied her, wishing themselves as fortunate as she. She was even pointed out and spoke of triumphantly by certain modern, down-to-date ones, as an example of the successful woman of the age. Her success, as it was called, was cited as a triumphant argument for the right of women to sell their womanhood for a price, to put their strength of mind and flesh and blood, their physical and intellectual vigor, their vitality and life, upon a market that cannot recognize their womanhood, even though by so doing they rob the race of the only contribution they can make that will add to its perfection. Really, if the customs and necessities of this age of down-to-datism are to take the world's mothers, then it would seem that this age of down-to-datism should find, for the perpetuation and perfection of the race, a substitute for women. The age should evolve a better way, a more modern way, than the old-fashioned way that has been in vogue so long. For, just as surely as the laws of life are beyond our power to repeal, so surely will the operation of the laws of life not change to accommodate our newest thinking, and the race, by spending its best woman's strength in work that cannot recognize womanhood, will bequeath to the age to come an ever-lowering standard of human life. The woman felt this. She felt that she could most truly serve the race by being true to the dreams of her womanhood. She felt that the work she was doing was not her real work, but a makeshift, to be undertaken under protest, and discarded without regret when her opportunity to enter upon the real work of her life should present itself. But still, even while feeling this, gradually there had come to be, for her, an amount of satisfaction in knowing that she was succeeding in that which she had set her hand to do. In the increasing reward she received, in the advanced position she occupied, in the deference that was shown her, in the authority that was given her, in the larger interests that were entrusted to her, and even in the attitude of those who held her to be a convincing example of the newest womanhood, there was coming to be a kind of satisfaction. Then came the day when the woman expressed a little of this satisfaction to the man who had always understood, and who had always been so kind. In this, too, the woman felt he understood. The man had not sought to take advantage of the intimacy she had granted him in those trying days when death had come into her life. He had never failed in being kind and considerate in the thousand little things of the work that brought them together, and that gave her opportunity to learn his goodness and the genuine worth of his manhood. Nor had he failed to make her understand that he still hoped for the time when she would go with him into the life beyond the old, old door. But that day, when she made known to him, a little, her growing satisfaction in that which the world called her success, she saw that he was hurt. For the first time he seemed to be troubled and afraid for her. Very gravely he looked down into her eyes. Very gravely he congratulated her. And then, quietly and convincingly, with words of authority, he pointed out to her the possible heights she might reach, would reach, if she continued. He told her of the place that she, if she chose, might gain. He spoke of the reward that would be hers. And, as he talked to her of these things, he saw the light of interest and anticipation kindling in her eyes. Sadly he saw it. Then, pausing, hesitating, he asked her slowly, Do you really think that it is, after all, worth while? For you, I mean, do you think that it would be a satisfying success? He did not wish to interfere with her career, he said, and smiled a little at the word. He would even help her if, if she was sure that such a career would bring her the real happiness he so much wanted her to have. And the woman, as the man looked into her eyes, and as she saw the trouble in his thoughtful face, and listened to his gravely spoken words, 
felt ashamed. Remembering again the dreams of her womanhood, she was ashamed. From that day, the woman was haunted by the thought of failure. Why, she asked herself, why could she not open the door of her heart to this man who had been so good to her, so true to her and to himself? If he had taken advantage in any way, if he had sought to use his power, she would not have cared so much. But because she knew him so well, because she had seen his splendid character, his fine manhood, his kindness of heart, and his strength, because of the dreams of her womanhood, she had tried to open the door and bid him take possession of her heart that was an empty room furnished and ready. But she could not. She seemed to have lost the key. Why, why could she not give this man what he asked? Why could she not go with him into the life of her dreams? What was it that held her back? What was it that held shut the door of her womanhood against him? Could it be that, after all, she was fit only for the career upon which she was already entered? Could it be that she was not worthy to enter into the life her womanhood craved, the life for which she had longed with such passionate longing, the life she had desired with such holy desire? Could it be that she was unworthy of her womanhood? Bitterly this woman, who knew herself to be a woman, who had dreamed the dreams of womanhood, and who was pointed out as a successful woman, bitterly felt that she had failed. She knew that her failure could not be because she had squandered the wealth of her womanhood. Very carefully had she kept the treasures of her womanhood for the coming of that one for whom she waited, knowing not who he was, but only that she would know him when he came. Might it be that he had come, and she did not know him? Might it be that the heart of her womanhood did not know? If this was so, then, indeed, life itself is but an accident, and must trust to blind chance the fulfillment of its most sacred mission, the perpetuation and perfection of itself. That the Creator should give laws for the right mating of all his creatures except man, leaving men and women, alone, with no guide to lead them aright in this relationship that is most vital to the species, is unthinkable. Deeply implanted in the hearts of men and women there is, also, an instinct. An instinct that is superior to the dictates of the social, financial, or ecclesiastical will. And it is this natural instinct of mate selection that should govern the marriages of humankind, as truly as it marries the birds of the fields and the wild things that mate in the forest. The woman knew instinctively that she should not give herself to this man. She felt in her heart that to do so would make her kin to her sisters in the unnameable profession. The church would sanction, the state would legalize, and society would accept such a union, does accept such unions, but only the divine laws of life, given for the protection of life, can ever make a man and a woman husband and wife. The laws that govern the right mating of humankind are not enacted by organizations either social, political, or religious, but are written in the hearts of those who would, in mating, fulfill the purpose of life. These laws may be broken by man, but they cannot by him be repealed, and the penalty that is imposed for their violation is very evident to all who have eyes to see and to observe with understanding. The woman knew, also, that in respect and honor and gratitude to this man, she dare not do this thing against which the instinct of her heart protested. But still she asked herself, Why? Why was the door shut against him? Why was it not in her power to do that which she so longed to do? And still, the thought of failure haunted her. And so it was that, in asking why, in seeking the reason of her failure, the woman was led back even to the years of her childhood. Back into her yesterday she went in search of the key that kept fast locked the door of her heart against the man whom she would have so gladly admitted. And all the way back, as she retraced the steps of her years, she looked for one who might have the key, 
but she found no one. And in her yesterdays, she found only a boy, who would enter her heart when it was the heart of a little girl. That the boy of her yesterdays lived still in the heart of the woman, she knew. But surely, surely, the boy was not strong enough to hold her woman heart against the man who sought admittance. The boy could not hold the door against the man and against the woman herself. Those vows, made so solemnly under the cherry-tree, were but childish vows. It was but a play-wedding, after all. And the kiss that had sealed the vows, the kiss that was so different from other kisses, it was but a childish kiss. In the long years that had come between that boy and girl, the vow and the kiss had become but memories, even as the games they played, even as her keeping house and her family of dolls. That childhood wedding belonged only to the yesterdays. The woman was haunted by the thought of failure. End of chapter 10